All right, guys, sex part two. Welcome to church. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I hope you uh, caught part one of the lust chastity message. Um, not because I think I'm so awesome and you should all listen to my words. Uh, mostly because this message builds on last week. And, and I begin this message from the assumption, a place of an assumption that that we actually want to be people who are more faithful, um, that we want to be people who are sexually faithful. Um, and maybe that's not where you are, uh, and maybe you don't feel that way, and maybe, you know, kind of these cultural messages that crowd in and say, well, that's useless, um, that, that didn't serve me. Uh, my, my argument for why is made more complete in that first message. Um, but to summarize, because, you know, um, when we choose to, to, to use sex outside of its design within the covenant of marriage, um, there is a price that's paid, uh, and, 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 and it's not just us that pays it. It's uh, the people that we love as well, and, uh, and, and we pay it also. You know, it, it makes us less human. It makes us less able to experience the pleasure uh, that God designed us to enjoy. Um, so there is a cost in it. And so, so we begin this week from the premise that uh, we, we want to be more faithful people. But if you're not there, I really hope that you'll listen to week one as well. Um, sex was designed by God. It was designed to do three things like we mentioned last week. It's designed to bring pleasure. It's designed to create life. And it's designed to bond people together, heart and soul, within the covenant of marriage. And last week we talked uh, about the dangers of sex when we use it outside its design. And the major one is that the, the problem is that sex still does what it's supposed to do, even when we use it outside of marriage. So it still brings pleasure and therefore can become addictive. Uh, it, it still brings life. It creates life, uh, which is how Bathsheba ended up with an unwanted pregnancy. And it still bonds people together, heart and soul. But without the commitment of marriage, those people can be ripped apart painfully, violently. I use the image of, you know, super gluing your finger to something accidentally. I was fixing a necklace once and I super glued my finger to the necklace. Um, and uh, I could pry my finger. I, like I got my finger back, not all of it, <laughs> you know, um, part of my DNA will permanently be attached to that necklace forever. Um, we leave little shreds of our hearts stuck to other people when we unify our bodies because sex still does what it's designed to do. So as Gary mentioned, we're continuing in our series, Undone. We're looking at the vices that we often engage in, the virtues that we often leave undone. And this isn't meant to be a self-help series. This is not a series about how you can better impress God with your holiness. It's, it's about living like the people that we actually are. When you accept Jesus, when you uh, become a Christian, you, you become a new creation. That's what scripture tells us. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And, and so we are a different person. And, and we should act like who we are. Uh, a lot of times, you know, the, the old person feels more like the real us, but that's just because that's just they've been around longer. It's nothing more supernatural than longevity. And so, you know, embracing virtue is about learning to live like the people we actually are, becoming more like ourselves. So last week we talked about the vice of lust. This week we are examining the virtue of chastity. Now, what is chastity? Chastity, very simple, is, is faithfulness. And more specifically, it is complete faithfulness to one's bride or bridegroom. And maybe you're single and you're like, sweet, I'm off the hook. Well, no, not really. Um, because scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. 
So every believer, married or single, has a bridegroom in Jesus, and the single Christian is called to complete faithfulness to their bridegroom, Jesus, and the married Christian is called to complete faithfulness to their bridegroom, Jesus, and also to their spouse. Last week, David's story, it showed us what unfaithfulness looks like and the consequences that it produced, not only for him, but for his family for generations and generations. And today, we're gonna look at Joseph's story. Joseph was faced with kind of a similar um, temptation, but he chose to be faithful, and we're gonna see how that turned out for him. Uh, you know, we, we saw what it looked like to do it wrong, so, so what does it look like to do it right? Our passage today is from Genesis 39. A little background on Joseph. Joseph is the favored son of his father, um, Jacob, and Joseph's brothers resent him for that. He, of course, doesn't help the matter because he tells them about his dreams where they're all stalks of wheat and they bow down to him, so that's probably not helpful. Uh, so they sell him in secret to Midianite merchants on their way to Egypt, and uh, they take his cloak of many colors, which his dad gave to him. They dip it in animal blood as proof that he was torn, torn to pieces. Um, they lie to their dad about what happened to him. And so um, these merchants take Joseph to, to Egypt, and they sell him again, this time to a man named Potiphar, the, the, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh's army. But the story tells us that, that God was with Joseph, and so he excels at everything that he's given to do. And so under uh, whatever Potiphar puts him in charge of, it just prospers under his care. And so that's where we're picking up today, Genesis 39, beginning in verse five. It's also in your bulletin if you'd like to read along. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. This is God's word. There's so much in here that could be commented on. Apparently I have a lot to say about this subject, uh, but I have to narrow it down uh, for the sake of time. Uh, so, so I've narrowed it down to, to three things that I think will help us to cultivate faithfulness like Joseph has shown here. First, we cultivate faithfulness by keeping our minds in the right place. Now, remember last week we talked about David and, and his sin began because he had his body in the wrong place. That's how that sin began. But Joseph, on the other hand, he didn't have a lot of choice about where his body is gonna be because he's a slave. So his body is where his master tells him to go. And so he does his best to avoid Potiphar's wife, but she speaks to him day after day to entice him. The literal translation says, uh, she invited him to lie near her, which means that he turned her down the first time, right? She says, come to bed with me. And he says, no, I'm not gonna do it. Uh, so then she changes up her strategy. Instead of come to bed with me, she says, just, just come be near to me. Let's just spend a little time together. And you know what she wants, you know? And she hopes that being near each other will, will cause something to happen. So, you know, just come be near me. 
So, so now Joseph is fighting on two fronts. You know, physically he is avoiding her, but then also mentally, mentally, he has to keep her seductive words from weakening his resolve. Chastity, it, it's a mental game as much as it is a physical one, just, just like all the other vices of the flesh, right? Like gluttony, you know, you don't even have to be hungry, but if you just think the words Chick-fil-A, <laughs> suddenly you're like lying to yourself that, you know, the traffic on Alpha isn't that bad. You know, it's always like wound around the building twice. It's Sunday, you can't even have it, but you want it, right? It's because you're thinking about it. It's a mental game. So Joseph cultivates faithfulness by keeping his mind in the right place. You can see it in the words that they use. She has one thing on her mind. She says, come to bed with me. Joseph, on the other hand, makes a, a pretty long speech about why this would be a terrible idea. He talks about the trust that her husband has placed in him. He says, you're, you're his wife, you're not my wife. Uh, this would be a sin against my God. So this is key. Joseph does not just avoid thinking about the wrong things. He intentionally thinks about the right ones. Does that make sense? It's, it, they're, they're different things. It, for example, if I told you, whatever you do, don't picture an elephant. What are you doing right now? I mean, <laughs> everyone in here, including me, is now seeing an elephant. But if I said, you know, instead, picture a giraffe, picture a bunny rabbit, picture a polar bear, picture a capybara. And if you don't know what that looks like, here's one. It's the world's largest guinea pig, you know? You can't unsee that. So it's easier to not picture the elephant when I give you some alternatives. You're not gonna get very far being a faithful person if your strategy is just don't think bad thoughts and don't do bad things, right? Because that's, that's why dieting doesn't work in the long term, right? Because it's all about restriction. It's all about restriction. When we first uh, moved to our house in 2012, Rob and I had just gotten married. Um, and I mentioned last week that our house backs up to kind of a green space, a wooded area, and then the little econ behind that. Uh, and so there were some critters in the backyard when we first moved in, and I love critters. So I fed the critters, and I'd throw them our dinner scraps out into the yard. Um, <laughs> Rob had installed a, a motion a motion detected floodlight uh, on our back porch. And I, and I loved this because the raccoons, you know, in the evening it was dark, the raccoons would come out and they'd start to eat the scraps and the light would come on and I'd, I'd be able to see them kind of doing their thing. And I thought it was so cute. I called it the friend indicator light because it told me when my friends had arrived. And I'd watch them out the back door. And I love this arrangement so much that I started leaving the scraps on the deck instead of in the yard. Uh, and so the, you know, the raccoons, they'd, they'd come up more and more often until finally Rob said, please, please stop feeding the raccoons. <laughs> I, I, want, I want them to be afraid of people. I want them to be uncomfortable. In other words, you know, I, don't, I want them to run away when I come out to grill things, uh, which I get, makes sense. So I kind of begrudgingly agreed. Um, but Rob was working at the time for a missionary organization and he would go on these trips that would last maybe two, three weeks at a time. And, <laughs> And I got lonely, okay? I got lonely. Uh, so I, you know, I, f I started feeding the raccoons again, okay? Don't judge me, Christians. And, <laughs> and uh, so I feed the raccoons and, and they got so comfortable with me that by our first Christmas in the house, I was literally hand feeding them bananas at our back door. Uh, they would like come up at night, they'd put their little paws on the window like, where's my banana? Um, so it was great. Uh, again, only when Rob was gone. <laughs> but then one night, Around Christmas time, uh, we're, he's back in town. We're just hanging out on the couch, eating Christmas cookies, watching Top Gear or something. And, and, uh, and one of the raccoons, it was, it was Patches. They all had names, Patches, Kyle, Quill. Patches was the big one. Um, <laughs> Patches creeps up onto the deck 
and he sees the Christmas cookies on, on the coffee table. So he looks at the Christmas cookies and he looks at us and then he just walks right in the house, takes a Christmas cookie and leaves. And so <laughs> Rob, who is horrified, looks over at me and then becomes more horrified because what does he see in my eyes? Utter delight. I have <laughs> arrived, you know? I've, I have a Dr. Doolittle-esque connection with this wild raccoon who now, you know, feels comfortable to sup at my table. And, uh, <laughs> and I loved it. And Rob, he didn't get mad. He didn't uh, repeat any of his admonitions about encouraging the raccoons. He didn't ask me to not leave food on the deck. What he did was get me a dog. <laughs> yeah. Now I don't feed the raccoons anymore. I give all my scraps to Ramses, our German shepherd. No amount of warnings about the diseases and, and the viciousness of the local trash panda population was enough to get me to break my bad habit until I had something better to replace it with. Restricting our bad habits, it doesn't actually create good ones. Do you understand? Like we, we have to replace them, not just restrict them. Joseph knows being faithful isn't just avoiding intimacy with the wrong person, it's, it's cultivating intimacy with the right one. Don't just avoid your unholy thoughts, replace them, replace them with holy ones. Philippians 4, 8, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Our minds will be filled with thoughts and images, but which ones, which ones? That's up to us. We have a say in that. I mean, it's, it's, this is why I tell you to read your Bible. Again, it's, it, I'm terribly practical. I don't care if you check a box. It's just practical. If you want to keep sinful images and thoughts out of your mind, the best strategy to do that is to fill your mind so full of the good ones that there simply isn't any room. We cultivate faithfulness by keeping our mind in the right place. Second, we cultivate faithfulness by living in reality. Now here's this woman who has become sick with lust for Joseph to the point where she's, she's displaying self-destructive behavior. I mean, if someone were to overhear her, if her husband were to find out, she would absolutely be put to death. And for what? For, for, for a moment of passion that won't last more than a few minutes? My husband uh, recently sold off some of his gear. Uh, he watched a documentary about minimalism and then started kind of cutting back the stuff that we had in the garage. Uh, some of it hadn't even, hadn't even been used once, um, but every year Rob would go to, uh, you guys familiar with Travel Country Outdoor? It's like a outdoor store, uh, like an REI. Um, and every year they do this thing called the porch sale and everything is just rock bottom prices. And so he would go and the prices on this gear would be so good that he would just lose all manner of control over himself and just come home with a bunch of stuff that he didn't need. When we got married, uh, he, owned, he owned 26 coats, 26 goose down, ripstop nylon insulated soft shells. We live in Waterford Lakes, you know? <laughs> like we run the air conditioning in January. There's no reason for that. So he watched this documentary. He sold off some of his gear, climbing gear, skiing gear. Also not a lot of skiing in Florida. Um, and, and, and the reason that he had all this stuff was because when he bought it, he's not really buying a piece of gear, right? He's buying a promise. <laughs> he's buying the promise of a lifestyle where he zips in and out of Colorado on the weekends to do a little rock climbing, a little skiing, have reason to wear a winter coat. And, and the advertisements, they, they are selling him this promise. 
they're banking on someone like Rob, you know, buying his dream of this Tim Ferriss lifestyle that, that a piece of equipment doesn't really produce for him. It's, it's not just him, right? It's all of us. I do this. I do this when I buy face cream because there's always some 20-year-old with perfectly dewy skin on the advertisement. And so I buy it, but then I put it on my face. What happens? Nothing. Because <laughs> it's face cream, right? I still look 37, but my cheeks smell like pomegranates. Who cares? <laughs> Lust advertises promises it can't deliver on it. And it gets away with it. It gets away with it because here's the reality. Real sex, normal human intimacy between husband and wife can be so disappointingly unspectacular because faithfulness is ordinary. It's ordinary. You know, when we experience physical intimacy with our spouse, it doesn't fulfill every desire and it isn't mind blowing and it doesn't complete me like Jerry Maguire promised it would. It doesn't do that. Chastity, faithfulness, sex done right isn't always sensational. But we have to talk about this because there are people who have gotten married who find themselves lonelier now than they ever were in their singleness because someone made them a promise. Someone promised us that, you know, once you get married, you, you'll, you'll never feel alone again. Zach said it well when he, when he said that, you know, youth leaders, they lie to their kids. They lie to students by telling them that if you just wait until you're married, you're gonna be swinging from the chandeliers on your wedding night. But that's not true, right? It's not. I mean, even if, it is, even if you do choose to swing from chandelier, that's not gonna change the fact that your first time is gonna last about 37 seconds, and now you have a broken chandelier to deal with too. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound like any fun. Potiphar's wife noticed Joseph. The literal translation is, she lifted her eyes to him. And so yes, she noticed, but then she took that noticing a step further and began to think about it, began to fantasize, to rehearse, what an encounter with him would be like. And these fantasies skew her perception of reality. She's now engaging in these behaviors that, that could get her killed. And for what? For, for sex that's worth dying for? Guys, it, it doesn't exist. And uh, that's why lust is so powerful because it feeds on fantasy. Lust is so powerful because it feeds on fantasy and fantasy is really the only arena where mind altering sexual experiences take place. You know, we, we, I think we, we don't think fantasy is such a big deal, but, but people lose their marriages over it. And we don't blame fantasy because it's often the first step instead of the last one. But fantasy provides the, the guardrails for a long, sad road to disconnection. Poet Steve Turner writes, she no longer brought him pleasure like girls in magazines who throbbed with lust and fantasy and stayed sweet 17. He never heard those beauties moan, except when in the sack. They knew a woman's place to be, undressed and on her back. She no longer brought him pleasure, like girls in magazines, so they slept in separate beds and snuggled up with dreams. He no longer brought her pleasure, like men in Mills and Boone, who were powerful yet gentle and impeccably groomed. In gray Mercedes cars they drove, their teeth and eyes were bright. They promised their undying love in pools of candlelight. He no longer brought her pleasure, like men in Mills and Boone, so they slept in separate beds and then moved to single rooms. They no longer found their pleasure in lives where flesh was real, so muddled on or called it quits or chased a better deal. Lust 
thrives in fantasy, but faithfulness thrives in flesh and blood. That's what makes it so hard because real flesh is flawed. It doesn't satisfy every fantasy and offer life-altering sexual experience, but, but, but neither does lust. Lust promises that, but then all it delivers really is, is an increase of appetite. It's not real. Faithfulness is hard because it lives in, in real, blemished flesh and blood, but that's also what makes it so good because it is real. It's, it's real flesh. It's real warmth. It's real connection. And, and no, it doesn't, it doesn't bring us perfect satisfaction because it wasn't meant to. Sex, sex is a symbol. It is a physical manifestation of a deeper desire present in every single human heart, the desire to have union, reunion, with God. It's a desire for oneness, to be completely known, to be naked, vulnerable, and totally exposed, and yet to be loved and accepted in that knowing. It was never meant to completely satisfy us. Sex was always meant to be an appetizer, never the main course. It's a foretaste of the ecstasy and the joy, the complete satisfaction that we experience when you're reunited with God because it's a spiritual need. And when we try to make physical union do all the work of spiritual satisfaction, we see that that is a strategy doomed to fail. Plato tells a myth about eros love, romantic love, and, and in which he says that Human beings were originally these spherical creatures with two heads and four arms and four legs. And then as punishment for trying to usurp the power of the gods, the gods split the humans in half. And so Eros then is, is our yearning to be reunited with our other half. And there's a, there's a hint of truth in that myth, only it's not being reunited with another human that completes us, that makes us feel complete, but being reunited with God our first home that, that, that we have been severed from as a result of sin. And physical union is just one way of expressing that longing, but it's imperfect and temporary. And hey, maybe none of this is landing for you because you're married and you are totally fulfilled in your sex life. That's great. I, I want that for you. God wants that for you. And, and if you are having mind-blowing sex with your spouse, I just want to say, you know, maybe check in with your spouse. <laughs> uh, it's not a guarantee that they are having the exact same experience. Um, it, that, that's, that's not, it's non sequitur. If nothing, else hap if nothing else happens as a result of these sermons, I hope that I've just forced some really awkward conversations <laughs> for you to have when you get home. Because remember last week, fantastic sex for one is achievable when we focus solely on our own pleasure. That's what lust is, but marriage Marriage calls us to serve our bride or bridegroom. Real love will always pursue the satisfaction of the beloved. And, and maybe your spouse is totally satisfied too. I hope they are. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that married sex is always unsatisfying. That, of course, is not true either. Sometimes it's incredible, you know? Sometimes you're perfectly in sync and there's trust and connection and, and, and the warmth and the strength and the curves and the heat and the, and the smells and the sensations feel like the flavors of heaven itself. Sometimes it is exactly a reflection of the perfect intimacy that we were created to experience, but sometimes it's not. And all I'm saying is that cultivating faithfulness requires us to live in reality and reality always involves more than just us. 
Us having a good time does not guarantee they are too. Our perception does not equal their reality. Joseph chooses to live in reality. He chooses to cultivate faithfulness with the right person, with his God, because he knows that that is the only place to have a spiritual longing fulfilled. Third, last thing I want to say about this. Joseph cultivates faithfulness by leaving something behind. He leaves his cloak in her hand as he runs out of the room. Now, his cloak was valuable to him for the, for the like, just the fact that it was his clothing, and that's important, but it was also valuable to him because it was a piece of damning evidence. She takes that cloak, she takes it straight to her husband and says, that Hebrew slave you brought in here, he assaulted me, and here's the proof. And so Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. Joseph left something valuable behind in order to flee the temptation that was in front of him. Faithfulness may require us to leave something that we want behind. What do you need to leave behind in order to be faithful? What does that look like for you? Is it, is it leaving behind the fantasy? Is it leaving behind the, the, the fantastical expectations? Is it leaving behind conversations with that one person? Is it, you know, leaving behind social media? Maybe you need a flip phone. I don't know. Um, I, I, had, I went through a regroup with a girl who uh, gave up watching romantic comedies forever. Um, and her roommates gave her a lot of crap about it, but she was like, listen, I don't want someone else's fantasy to ruin my reality. It's just wise, you know? It, it, that's not legalism, that's, that's just wisdom. She's not saying it's sinful for people to watch romantic comedies. She's saying it's not helpful for me. Mark 9, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to go to hell with both hands. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Yes, we will have to leave some things we want behind. To be faithful, we will have to say no to some of our desires. And yes, it does cost us something. There, there is a suffering that we endure for that. It's a dying to self. I mean, it didn't just cost Joseph his coat, it cost him his freedom. But what Jesus is saying is that there is a much worse kind of loss that we suffer when we say yes to things that aren't ours to take. And he's also reminding us there's a reward. There's a reward for faithfulness that we may not yet understand. Joseph is thrown into prison here and it seems like, well, it seems like he's being punished for his faithfulness, but that's not the end of the story. It's, it's interesting, he wasn't killed. Now, what did he do? He was accused of sexually assaulting another Egyptian man's wife. Now, that would have been punishable by death even if he were an Egyptian, like a full citizen. He's a Hebrew slave. So that wouldn't have warranted any special mercy, but he's not killed. So, so we can guess that, that Joseph pled his own innocence. He said, I didn't, I, I didn't do this. And, and, and we can assume, I think it's reasonable to assume that Potiphar uh, reflected on Joseph's trustworthiness his, his performance over the years and, and thought, you know, maybe my wife isn't telling the whole truth. So he didn't kill him. He, he throws him in Pharaoh's prison. And again, that can seem like punishment for faithfulness, but listen, it's in that prison where Joseph meets the cupbearer who will introduce him to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's having these dreams, right? That no one can interpret. And the cupbearer says, I know a guy, I met him in prison. So Joseph interprets for Pharaoh. These dreams mean that there's a terrible drought coming. And as a result, you know, Pharaoh puts him in charge. He's second in command in all of Egypt. And, and through Joseph's wisdom, 
the Egyptians store up all this food for the coming drought and famine. And it's, it's because of the presence of that food in Egypt that the Israelites, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery and faked his death, it's because of the presence of that food that the Israelites come to Egypt during the famine to buy the food. And that's where he sees them. That's where Joseph reveals himself to them and is reconciled to his brothers. And, and, and he tells them what you intended to harm, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. Joseph's singular choice, it's one choice. Joseph's singular choice to resist temptation and to be faithful to his God, that one choice had ripple effects that saved not only his life, but his brothers, his fathers. It reconciled him to his estranged family and ultimately it preserved the line of Abraham through which 1500 years later, the Messiah would be born to an unwed teenage girl named Mary. Don't tell me that our choices don't matter. They do, every single one of them. My brother Jason, uh, he said his first curse word when he was three years old. Um, if you've ever heard me speak at Regroup, you probably know that my family of origin were all in recovery for something, you know, substance abuse, alcoholism, codependency. We're like the Golden Corral restaurant of dysfunction, just a little bit of everything. But I share this with you to indicate how it's possible that my brother might have come to be familiar with a curse word at such a tender young age. I think um, colorful language is probably the least of our offenses at the time. So my brother's three, he's strapped into his car seat, and he's trying to get a shoe on. And, uh, you know, baby's trying to put shoes on, real cute in and of itself. But, you know, so he's like trying to reach and he can't quite reach. And he's making little baby noises like, eh, eh. Can't get it. So finally gets frustrated, takes the shoe, and he chucks it at the dashboard. And he says, effing shoe. Oh. <laughs> and my parents are like, oh, where did he learn that word? Well, <laughs> I mean, he learned it from them, right? I wasn't born, so it for sure wasn't me. Um, just... I'm absolved. And maybe they didn't teach it to him on purpose, but in all those little in-between moments when they thought he wasn't listening, he learned it all the same. Sin is sticky. It gets all over other people, even when you don't want it to. It never affects only us. We saw that with, with David's story last week, but what we see in Joseph's story is that virtue is sticky too. It never affects only you. You know, when I wake up in the morning and I'm so tired because my daughter had a cough and I was up a bunch of times with her and my arthritis is kicking and I just wanna drink my coffee and scroll my phone for information on the Iowa caucuses, like I know, I know that I should begin my day by replacing my unholy thoughts with holy ones and I know that I should read the Bible and I should pray, but it just doesn't seem that urgent because I don't feel like my faithfulness is really life and death for anybody. But guys, guys, Joseph's was. It was life and death. We just don't know. Guys, we just don't know who our sin and who our obedience affects, but you can be absolutely certain that it's not just you. Joseph made a good choice because he had cultivated an intimate relationship with God. It was the natural result of an ordinary daily pursuit of faithfulness. He didn't know it was gonna save the world, but, 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 but our choices, our choices, they either mean nothing or they mean something. And if they mean something, who can put a limit on that something? There will always be more wrapped up in our single moments of choice than the enemy would have us believe. Because there's always ripples and lives 
could be lost or saved by our decision. The virtue of chastity, of, of faithfulness to our bridegroom in Christ, it, it's, it's, it's ordinary. It's built, you know, on ordinary, unspectacular days, one at a time. It's, it's, it's prayer, it's scripture, it's, it's noticing other people's sadness. It's doing what you can to keep yourself out of situations where you're gonna get angry. You know, it's, it's, it's listening, it's, it's thinking less about yourself. Uh, it's, it's humility, it's diligence. Maybe it's asking your spouse how you can make the sex better for them. It's small, ordinary things. And, you know, we get to see this, this enormous moment of moral victory in Genesis 39, but what we don't see are all the ordinary moments of pursuing God that made that victory possible. And, and I, I wish we had something, you know, I wish, I wish there was more that we could grab onto. I, I, I wish we could all have a face-to-face -face conversation with God. I feel like I would be such a good Christian if I could just sit down with Jesus and have coffee. You know, I wish that we could do that, but we can't. We can't. We don't get that opportunity. The closest we can get is to read the, the book that he wrote us and to pray even when it feels like no one's listening and, and to look for his image and the people that he's given us to love. But, but I want you to never, ever undersell those ordinary acts of faithfulness because it is on their foundation that the extraordinary ones are always built. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for being faithful to us, even when we didn't deserve it. And not only didn't deserve it, Lord, but we rebel from you. We run from you when you offer us grace because we're making our mud pies in the slum. We don't realize what you're offering, the goodness of life lived in faithfulness to you. Lord, help open our eyes to what we're missing. Help open our eyes to, 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 to the peace that surpasses all understanding that happens to us when we choose to be faithful to you and, and forego the petty pleasures of this life that tell us they're going to be eternal but aren't. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would, would recognize what it is that we need to leave behind in order to be nearer to you, in order to pursue faithfulness to you. Um, help us to have the courage to look carefully and closely at our own lives because what you promise us is so much better than the temporary and finite things that we can grasp in this world. Lord, let us see with your eyes. Let us understand that our ordinary acts of faithfulness can be life-saving, not just to us, but to, to, to our kids, to, the, to our grandkids, to people that we won't ever know because they're not born yet. Lord, help us to look with eternal perspective at all that you see. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.